Hey, good morning, Trinity Church. How are you guys? Great. Awesome. Very good. Uh, my name is Jared Mantani. I am the local missions and young adults pastor. And uh, from time to time, I get the distinct privilege of preaching God's word on a Sunday morning. So that's what we're going to do today. And so I want to invite you. You're going to need a Bible and you're going to need to turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. So as I said, I am uh, the young adult pastor here at Trinity. And so I am always watching, listening, and trying to keep my ear on what is happening with young adults here in America. So anytime uh, there is a news article or something that's trending within the young adult world or young adult community, I, I try to pay attention. And so recently, I uh, saw a news article, a red news article, entitled, More Young Adults Are Not Wanting to Get Married. Clearly, they're not at our young adult group. Because um, our young adults want to get married, right, young adults? Let's go, right? Uh, so in that article, they uh, cited some recent uh, statistics regarding millennials and Gen Zs, their outlook, their view on marriage. So according to this article, 40% of millennials and Gen Zs uh, view marriage as an outdated tradition. They view marriage as an outdated tradition. One in six report that they do not plan on getting married. 85% of millennials and Gen Zers believe marriage is unnecessary for a fulfilled and committed relationship. 70% said that it is intrusive and bothersome when people ask them about their marriage plans or whether or not they're going to have children. So if you have millennials or Gen Zs, they're asking you not to ask that question. Uh, more than three in five unmarried couples live together, showcasing a shift towards cohabitation. And 47% of those surveyed said they are afraid of potentially getting divorced. Lastly, last statistic this article said is that more than half of millennials and Gen Zs see cohabitation uh, uh, and living together as a step towards marriage, and they believe it will help them to be more successful if, and that's the word if, they choose to get married. The article ends saying this, with the majority uh, finding getting married too expensive and a significant portion viewing it as an outdated tradition, these generations increasingly opt for cohabitation and prioritize financial stability over traditional marital commitments. The landscape of marriage is undergoing a significant transformation. So when I heard that and I read that, it was pretty shocking. It's shocking, right? And so what I thought to myself, and maybe you were thinking this, is clearly, clearly the people that were being interviewed, they probably weren't Christians. They probably weren't church-going folk. They clearly are not people who worship the Lord because there is no way that those who profess faith and worship the Lord would ever adopt such attitudes and practices that are not in alignment and not in sync with Scripture, would they? Would they? Now, I don't know if the people that were interviewed here were Christians or not. It didn't say whether these were people of faith or not. But the passage that we are looking at today in Malachi, it is addressed 
It is written to a people that were doing actually just this. They were professing worshipers of the Lord, but when it came to their attitude and actions regarding marriage, they were misaligned and they were out of sync with God's word and God's will for marriage. So this morning, that is what we're going to be looking at as we study Malachi 2.10 through 16. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity this morning to worship you. I love that last song that we just sang, Lord, a song that looks forward to that day when we are going to say hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And even after that, Lord, it is a song that is sung before the marriage supper of the Lamb, before that great day when the bride is with the bridegroom. Until then, Father, help us to live our lives in sync with the bridegroom. Let us live in sync with his word and his will concerning all things, especially in this area of marriage. We ask, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So Malachi chapter 2, we're going to read verses 10 through 12. Malachi writes, he says, Don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously, or as some of your translations might say, uh, faithlessly against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the, Lord's, the Lord of armies. So our passage this morning begins with the prophet Malachi asking really what is a rhetorical question to the people of Israel. The rhetorical question is, don't we have one father? Didn't one God create us? Then why do we act treacherously against one another, one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? Of course, Malachi, he is expecting the answer to this rhetorical question to be, yes, yes, Malachi. Yes, we all do have one father. And yes, Malachi, one God did create us. So why is Malachi asking this question? Well, he's not asking this question to be facetious, nor is he asking this question as some wrongly teach that he's teaching the universal fatherhood of God. But what he is doing is he is asking this question in order to make a point specifically to the people of Israel in his day. Here's the point. If God is our creator and if God is our father, and we are the covenant people of God, then why are we not acting like it? Why are we not acting like the covenant people of God? As the covenant people of God, as the group or the nation that was set apart by the Lord, they were supposed to live lives that were radically and distinctly different than the nations around them. They were supposed to be set apart living by this covenant, this Old Testament covenant that guided their relationship both with God and their relationship with each other with the purpose that they might be a light, they might be an example to the Gentile nations around them. 
But unfortunately, historically, as many of you know, they were doing anything but living by this covenant. And so the Lord sends this prophet Malachi. He sends him to confront them uh, with a very strong word. And in this passage uh, alone, in Malachi 2, 10 through 16, he's going to say five times, he's going to make a case, he's going to indict them for acting treacherously. He's going to call them out for spiritual unfaithfulness. So the question is this, how were they acting treacherously? How were they being unfaithful? Well, first he says this, he says, you're acting treacherously by engaging in what he calls detestable marriages. Detestable marriages. Look in your Bibles again with me, verse 11, what Malachi the prophet says. He says, Judah, Judah or the nation or the kingdom there has acted treacherously and a detestable act has been done in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary or his house, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. This is really strong language, isn't it? He says they were doing something detestable. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word detestable, but it's something that makes you sick. It's something that's disgusting. It's something that's vile. It's something that when you see it, hear it, smell it, think about it, it just churns in your stomach. And Malachi the prophet is charging the people of Israel, God's covenant people, with doing something that was churning the stomach of the Lord. So what was it that they were doing? Well, he tells us. He spells it out for us. Look at what he says. He says they were disrespecting the Lord's house, the sanctuary, specifically by marrying women who were worshipers of other gods, And bringing them in there, and they were thinking God was cool with it. God was okay with it. Another way of saying this, we use the Christianese term, they were unequally yoked. How many of you have heard that term before? Unequally yoked. It's a Christianese term. It's a term that Christians use and people in the church use. So what does it mean to be unequally yoked? Well, it means to be hitched together in a relationship between those who worship and follow the Lord and those who don't. It's to be hitched together in a relationship between those who worship and follow the Lord and those who don't. What does God think about such marriages? What does he think? What's his thoughts on it? What's his heart say about it? Well, contrary to what some people think, and listen, contrary to what some people feel both inside the church and outside the church, contrary to what they feel, God calls it both a treacherous betrayal and a detestable act. Again, pretty strong language. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4. The Lord told the people before they entered into the promised land, he says this, he says, you must not intermarry with them speaking of the nations around them, speaking of the non-covenant people, you must not intermarry with them. And you must not give their daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods 
Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. I want you to see this. I don't know if you mark in your Bible at all, but for those of you who mark in your Bible, you might want to underline the purpose, the reason, the heart behind why God gave these instructions. As a loving father, as a wise God who is the one who created marriage and who called these people into a relationship with him, he gave these instructions to be a safeguard. They were to be a safeguard to protect both their relationship and worship of him. He's very specific. Don't marry the people who are outside the covenant community. Because if you do, they will turn your heart from worshiping me. Sadly, the people of Israel, they ignored this instruction, and ultimately it led to their spiritual, their moral uh, decay and decline as a, a nation. And ultimately God says, okay, I need to discipline you. And so he sends them into exile for 70 years into the nation of Babylon. And you would think that they learned their lesson, but they didn't. They actually come back from exile, and the book of Malachi is written after they come back from exile, and guess what the people are doing? They're doing the same thing again. History is repeating itself. The very thing that they just got disciplined for, they're engaging in those practices again, and so God sends Malachi to them and says, listen, you guys are not learning your lesson. I told you not to intermarry with these people because they're going to turn your hearts away from me. And the people disregarded this word. They disregarded God's revelation. They were marrying, specifically the men were marrying these women, and then they were bringing them into the Lord's house. As far as the Lord was concerned, this was no small thing in his eyes then. And listen, it is no small thing in his eyes now. It is no trivial thing to the Lord. Because I work with young adults, one of the things we talk a lot about is relationships and marriage. We talk a lot about that. And one of the truths that I share often with our young adults is that God cares. God is heavily invested in who you date and who you marry. If you are single in here, it doesn't matter what age, if you are single in here, does God care who you marry and who your son or daughter marries? He does. He does. God absolutely cares. And listen, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, God cares deeply who you marry. He cares deeply who your child marries. He cares deeply who your grandson, your granddaughter Marries and his word is not silent about this issue. And as I said, it is not a trivial matter to him, and nor should it be to us either as the church. 2 Corinthians 6.14, probably the most well-known passages about uh, being unequally yoked, says this. It says, do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial or with Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now listen, the primary context of 2 Corinthians 6.14, we often use it 
to talk about marriage, but contextually speaking, it's not talking about marriage, but partnership between the church and false teachers, false apostles, false prophets. But the truth in the principle can be equally applied to marriage because if marriage is anything, those of us who are married, you know that it is both a partnership and a fellowship greater than any other human relationship. So what does Paul say about being unequally yoked? Well, he says, what, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What do they have in common? 1 Corinthians 7.39, the apostle Paul writing this long chapter about marriage and divorce and singleness and all these things, talking to the widows. He said, if you are a widow and you want to get married, he says, you're free to get married, but listen, but only in the Lord. He's like, man, if you want to get married, get married. But listen, they need to be in the Lord. They need to be followers of Jesus. And then in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, talking to the Corinthian church, he says, don't we, speaking of him and Barnabas, he says, don't we have the right to take with us, notice this, a believing wife. He didn't just say, don't we have the right to take a wife? No, no, no. He makes sure that they are a believing wife. Now, I know some of you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was not a believer. I was not a Christian when my spouse and I started dating and then we got married and then after however many years, I became a believer and Jared, it's been all good. First of all, that is the exception, it is not the norm. That is the exception, it is not the norm. It is not the norm for a Christian to marry a non-Christian or an unbeliever, marry them and then they convert and they become a follower of Christ. That is the exception. That is not the norm. Secondly, almost every relationship that I know of that was unequally yoked at the beginning, the believing spouse would tell you those were some of the darkest and most difficult years of marriage. Some of you might be in that dark and difficult season right now. Your spouse wants nothing to do with Jesus they're cold, they're indifferent, or maybe even worse, they are antagonistic. They will tell you how it was truly difficult to love and follow Jesus wholeheartedly with someone who didn't understand, question, maybe even ridiculed them for their commitment to Christ. They will tell you how difficult it was that they couldn't pray with their spouse when they had a long, terrible, horrible day at the office, and all they wanted to do was hold hands with their spouse and say, can we please pray to the Lord together? They will tell you how agonizing it was that the husband who was an unbeliever wouldn't just say, hey, honey, let's see what the Lord's word has to say about this. They will tell you that they didn't have the spouse to say, listen, what does the promises of God have to say about our situation here? They will tell you how difficult it was that they couldn't serve the Lord together. And every time they walked out of the house to go do another church activity, the eyes would roll in the back. You're going there to church again? And then they'd feel bad about it. They will tell you how difficult it was to hear about all these couples, their friends, being in small groups together and how wonderful it was to do life with each other. But how difficult it was because their spouse didn't want to do that. They will tell you that it was tough to not be able to share with their spouse what they're learning in God's word and 
the excitement that they have about Jesus. In most cases where people get into a marriage with a non-believer, oftentimes what ends up happening is the faith of the person involved is quenched or it's compromised. You guys know what something, when something is quenched, right? It's diminished. The fire is turned down. It's taken down a notch. It's quenched and it's compromised while they're dating, and it's quenched and it's compromised when they get married. So listen, while you may be the exception, not the norm, and we are thankful, we praise the Lord for his act of grace in your life, it is still unwise, unfaithful, and listen, it is an act of disobedience for a professing Christian to willfully neglect a clear teaching of Scripture and to marry someone who does not worship and follow Christ. With that being said, let me address some different groups in here right now. First of all, single people. Single people. My encouragement to you is to resolve to only date and marry in the Lord. Settle it now in your heart. Settle it now in your mind. I will not compromise in this. I will not compromise. I don't care how good looking they are. I don't care how rich they are. I don't care how well educated they are. I don't care how nice they are. I don't care. If they are not in the Lord, it's not even a conversation we're having. It's not even an option on the table. Those of you who are unequally yoked relationships, there might be some of you in here right now. I'm so glad you're here. We're glad you're here. The Lord is glad you're here. If you are in an unequally yoked relationship right now, including maybe you are even engaged and you are days, weeks, months from walking down the aisle and saying, I do, with that person, you have to remember marriage was not designed to be a mission field. Marriage was not designed to be a mission field. There is no such thing as a missionary marriage. Marriage wasn't designed to be a mission field. It was designed to be a mutually encouraging relationship and representation of the love between Jesus and the church. And listen, if your spouse doesn't have any desire or your future spouse doesn't have any desire or knowledge of what God's design, role, and responsibility is for them, how are they going to even begin to fulfill those roles and responsibilities in a way that both honors the Lord and fulfills that commitment to you? So for those of you who profess to be a believer, a follower of Christ, and you're serious about loving him, the Lord is sounding the alarm. The question is, will you listen? Will you listen? I give you permission to break up with them. Come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk. We'll talk. And then those of you who are married and you're in an unequally yoked relationship, what do you do? First of all, first of all, I just want to remind you the Lord loves you. The Lord loves you. He loves you and he has a word for you about what you are to do in this situation. You've already made your vow. Do you divorce them? Honey, I went to church today. I'm out. No. You might want to write this down. 1 Peter 3, 1 Corinthians 7. The Lord gives practical wisdom on counsel on this issue. He tells us that if you are unequally yoked, you are to remain married, but as you do so, you remain supremely committed to Jesus and his word. 
you remain supremely committed to Jesus and his word. And as you do so, you also continue to love, encourage, respect, and honor your spouse. And prayerfully, as you do that and you walk in this difficult tension of loving Jesus supremely and loving them sacrificially, that hopefully they're going to see you do this and they will be one without a word. That they will see your life and they will be one without a word. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the book or the movie, The Case for Christ. How many of you have seen or read the book, The Case for Christ? Many of us are familiar with Lee Strobel's story. Lee Strobel's wife became a Christian. She became a believer. And those were some difficult and tough years for them. Ultimately, Lee sets out to want to disprove Christianity, but as he does so, the Lord enters into his life and wrecks his life, and now he's one of the greatest advocates, advocates for the Christian faith. And so the Lord worked in that situation, and he worked because his wife was willing to win him without a word, and as well as the work of the Holy Spirit as he began to investigate the truths of Scripture and the resurrection of Christ. I'd also say this, if you are married and you're unequally yoked and you need encouragement or counsel and you're not in a small group, please get into a small group. Get around some, some brothers and sisters who are gonna love you, encourage you, pray for you, listen to you, cry with you, encourage you and motivate you. Keep going, keep going. So Malachi continues. He says in verses 13 through 16, he says, uh, he speaks out on, not on how the men were acting treacherously by who they were marrying, but he moves on to how they were divorcing their wives. Let's look at verses 13 through 16. Malachi says, as if that was not enough, there is another thing that you guys are doing. There's another thing. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because the Lord no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you, nation of Israel, you ask, why? Why is the Lord not respecting our offerings? Why is he not accepting our worship? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously, there it is again, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner. And she was your wife by covenant. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? And what is the one? What is the Lord seeking? Well, he's seeking godly offspring. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. Verse 16, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherous. Here's another thing you're doing, says Malachi. Your men, specifically your men, they are coming to the altar of worship. They're coming to the Lord's house, the Lord's sanctuary, and they're coming to worship. They're offering their, their sacrifices, and they're coming to worship the Lord, thinking everything was okay between them and God but God rejected their worship. And, and when he did, they started weeping and crying, Lord, why aren't you respecting my offering? Why aren't you respecting my prayers? Why aren't you respecting our sacrifices and our service? 
And the Lord says, do you really want me to tell you the answer to that? I will. And he does. He tells him in verse 14, look at what he says. I'm going to tell you why I'm not respecting your worship. Because I've seen how you're treating your wives. I'm, I'm actually, the Lord says, I'm actually a witness as if I'm on the stand testifying on behalf of your wife how you're guilty for breaking faith because you're breaking the covenant you made with them when you first married them. It's like the Lord is on the witness stand. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth so help you? Yeah. In my name, yes, I do. Lord, how are they treating their wives? Treacherously. Faithlessly. Disrespectfully. How are they doing that, Lord? Well, you know what they're doing? They made a covenant with them. They made a promise. They made an agreement to love them, protect them, care for them, provide for them. To be faithful till they die, because that's what a covenant is. It's a covenant till death, and they're breaking it. Well, what are they doing, Lord? Well, they're breaking the covenant, and they're getting rid of their wives and divorcing them. Now, the passage does not tell us specifically why they were divorcing them. It doesn't tell us why, but most scholars believe that what was happening here in this lower portion of Malachi is connected to the top portion. That they were seeing these worshipers of other gods and they were like, hmm, I'm going to get rid of this wife and I'm going to go after that wife or that woman. I'm going to cast her aside. I'm going to break the covenant. I'm going to break faith with her and I'm going to go marry this other woman for whatever reason. And so most scholars believe they were ditching their wives for other women. Regardless if that was the case or not, how does the Lord feel about it? Well, he wasn't pleased with it. He wasn't happy with it. He wasn't acceptable towards it. He was not cool with it that they were divorcing their wives and then coming to the house of worship, lifting up their hands, singing the songs, putting their offering in the tithe box, thinking everything was cool between them and the Lord. Now, before a lot of shame sits in, I think it's important we, we talk about and define what kind of divorce the Lord is talking about here. What kind of divorce is he talking about and what kind of divorce is he not talking about? Well, listen, this is not... This is not talking about divorce for what we'd call biblical grounds for divorce. Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, they both outline that there are permissible reasons why God's people can get divorced. Those two cases, the Bible says, are in cases of adultery and abandonment. The Lord says it, Paul says it, he repeats it, that there are biblical permissions to divorce a spouse in circumstances, in cases of adultery or in cases of abandonment. The Bible makes it clear that those are justifiable reasons to get divorced. And that is a sermon for another time. And so I don't want to get too sidetracked into the nuances of all of that. But the divorce being talked about here what Malachi is addressing 
It is unjustifiable, unwarranted, unbiblical divorce that was rooted in sin and selfishness. It was unwarranted, unjustifiable divorce that was rooted in sin and selfishness. It's the kind of divorce that in our society, in our culture today, we just slap the irreconcilable differences sticker on it. It's the kind of divorce that says, well, I'm just not in love with them anymore. As if love is a location, love is a choice. Love is an action, it's not a location. Well, we've just grown apart. We're different people than when we first got married. You should be. You should be. You should be different people. Or we were too young when we got married. We just didn't know what we were doing. Or the one that I hear often, which is the most heartbreaking of them all, is I think I married the wrong person and I found my soulmate. I married the wrong person, but I found my soulmate. The Lord sees this. He sends the prophet Malachi, and Malachi confronts these men who thought they could just come into the house of worship and everything was all good. The Lord was pleased with them because they were doing the religiously right thing, going to church on Sunday, being in small group on Wednesday, serving in kids' ministry throughout the week, and the Lord says, "Um, pump your brakes. That's my translation, pump your brakes. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You can't just treat treat your spouse like garbage, toss them to the side, break your covenantal promise, and rip apart what I've made one. Notice he said, I've made one. Since the beginning in Genesis all the way through scripture, God says when you get married, you become one with that person. And he says you can't just tear that, rip that apart. And then just think I'm cool with it and I'm just gonna receive your worship. Authentic worship and relationship with the Lord doesn't work that way. And so the Lord says this, actually what you guys are doing is not worship. Look at what you're doing. What you're doing, he calls an act of hatred, injustice, and treachery. Look at verse 16 again with me. He says, if, if he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherous. Verse 16, no doubt, is one of the most powerful statements in all of Scripture concerning God's heart and mind regarding divorce. Many of you, you probably grew up with the King James or the King Jimmy or the New King James. And that verse reads a little bit differently where it says God hates divorce. How many of you grew up with that verse or have heard that God hates divorce? And you're thinking right now, well, wait a minute. Why does it read differently in the translation you just read? Well, it has to do with the difficulty of interpreting the Hebrew manuscripts. And so the wording of this verse can be taken in one of two ways, either referring to a man who hates and divorces his wife or to God himself hating divorce. But listen, either way, either way, this verse is clear. God in no way and no sense approves of unjust Divorce. He doesn't approve. As far as God is concerned, to divorce your wife in such a manner is to break your covenant with him, to tear apart what he made one, and he says it's to cover your garment with injustice 
or as some of your translations say, with violence. The picture here of this garment is really powerful. Remember in Ruth chapter three, she asked Boaz to put his garment over her, to cover her as a sign of his uh, a pledge to protect and to provide and to care for her. In the Old Testament, the men would place that garment over the wife to symbolize all of those things. And now that garment that was supposed to be a source of assurance and comfort for the wife, it's now shrouded in violence and it's a garment of betrayal and pain. So in light of the sacredness of, of marriage and the value God places on the covenant of marriage, twice he gives them an action point. He says, watch yourselves carefully and guard your spirit. This is the action point. In light of everything that I just told you, watch yourselves and carefully guard your spirit. What does it mean to watch yourselves and guard your spirit? Well, it means to be alert. It means to be awake. It means to be on guard. It means to be proactive, watching out for anything and everything in you that might cause your spirit or heart to drift away from being faithfully loyal and committed to the Lord and to your spouse. It's to be on guard, it's to be on watch, it's to be on the lookout, internally, in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit for anything that would cause you to make you think that it's okay if I go ahead and do something like this. Practically, what does this look like? Practically, what does it look like to guard your spirit and to watch yourselves? I believe it comes down to four areas. First of all, guard against your comparison. Guard against comparison. Husbands, wives, guard yourselves against comparison. Comparing your spouse with other people. The spouse that you have is the one that you have. They are your soulmate. They are the one that God has put together with you. I hope you saw in that language, it's interesting. In verse 15, it said, didn't God make them one? Who's making them one? The Lord is making them one. He is the one that made you one with the spouse that you have. Hubbies, wives, look at your spouse right now and say, we are one. We are one. Guard yourselves against comparison. Well, if only they, and you could fill in the blank, if only they were better looking, if they, only they were more fun, if only they would bring home more money, if only they would be more athletic, if only they would understand, whatever, fill in the blank, guard yourself against comparison. Secondly, guard yourself against complacency. Guard yourself against complacency. You guys know this who are married, a healthy marriage requires effort. It requires effort. It requires what some say, grace and grit. It requires grace and grit. It requires guarding against complacency. It takes work, it takes effort, it takes time, it takes investment. And as I tell our young adults all the time, it takes intentionality. Guard yourselves against being complacent. Guard yourselves against it. Secondly, or thirdly, guard yourself against a critical and condemning spirit. How many marriages end in divorce, how many marriages are unhealthy because you just stuff it down, you become bitter, you become angry, you never communicate, you never talk, you never address the real issues that you're having with one another, with 
your spouse or even with yourself. You become critical and condemning. And that leads to a lot of counseling sessions with pastors because you're critical and condemning. Fourth area to guard yourself is to guard yourself against sexual compromise. Guard yourself against sexual compromise. The fastest way to ruin your marriage is to be unfaithful. Be unfaithful in spirit, in heart, in mind, physically, sexually. And when I say guard yourself with sexual, against sexual compromise, I be, mean both physical adultery with an actual person, and I also mean with pornography. To guard yourselves. Pornography is a poison. It is a toxic. It will destroy your intimacy with your spouse, unlike anything else in this world. So guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. Let me take a few minutes like I did earlier to address a couple of people in here real quickly. First of all, if you've been on the receiving end of an unjustifiable divorce, if your spouse did to you what the men of Israel were doing in Malachi's day, first of all, I'm glad you're here today. The Lord loves you. He loves you. He knows the hurt. He knows the pain. He knows the sorrow. As he says right here, I, I've witnessed, I've seen it. What has happened to you has not been lost on me. I've seen it. He is your witness. And you don't need to feel guilty because somebody else sinned in this manner against you. Very sadly, I've seen Malachi 2.16, God hates divorce used to shame those who have been divorced for unjustifiable reasons and used to beat them up over the head with it, and there's a lot of shame and guilt. That verse was not meant to shame and to guilt people. It was meant to be a warning against those who said, you know what, I'm done with you, on to the next, and it'll be okay. So if you have been on the receiving end of an unjustified divorce, the Lord loves you. And I just want to encourage you, get into a community group. Get plugged into, divorce, into a divorce care ministry. And if you don't know how to do that, would you come talk to one of the pastors? Pastor Steve over here, he's our community group uh, pastor. We'll help you get plugged into a group to help you. So you could walk this journey with people who are going to love and encourage you and pray for you. Secondly, if you're considering divorcing your spouse, I'm glad you're here today. Maybe you're here today and this is like the Hail Mary moment. I'm glad. If you're considering divorcing your spouse, listen, particularly for no clear, justifiable biblical reason, this is God's warning sound to you. If you are in here, men or women, and some other person has caught your eye, and you're thinking, you know what? I'm just going to slide out of this one. And I'm going to slide into that one. The Lord is saying, guard yourselves. Watch your spirit. Because he does not look kindly upon those who do that. And he is not pleased with it. And so I would say this, brother or sister in here, if you are at that point, this is God's warning siren to you. Thirdly, 
if your marriage is in crisis, if your marriage is in crisis, would you come talk to a, pas a pastor? We would love to set you up with some counseling. We would love to help you with this. We would love to walk alongside you as best as possible, pointing you towards people and resources that are going to love you, care for you, encourage you, challenge you, admonish you. Come talk to somebody and get some counseling. But here's the thing. Just like divorce doesn't happen overnight, rebuilding your marriage doesn't either. Just like it took effort and intentionality and sacrifice at the beginning of your relationship, it's going to take the same kind of effort even more to rebuild your marriage. But here's the thing. We have a bona fide guarantee by the Lord. If both of you are willing to recommit and do things the Lord's way, he can restore, rebuild. He could turn beauty from ashes. He could take what is torn and mend it because our God is a God who is a God who restores the broken marriages. I've seen it dozens and dozens and dozens of times. There are people in this church right now next to you who they just said, okay, Lord, whatever it takes, I'm gonna do it your way. And it's gonna take a lot of sacrifice. And as I said, it's gonna take grace and grit to do this, but we're gonna do it. And as we do that, Lord, you're gonna do it and you're gonna rebuild the broken marriage. You gotta put in the work though. Lastly, what do you do if you're sitting in here and you say, Jared, I'm guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. I divorced my spouse for selfish, sinful reasons. And I know the damage I've caused in their life, in my kids' lives. I know the fallout. What do I do? Well, I'm glad you asked. What do you do anytime you hear that you're a sinner and you've been confronted with your sin? What do you do anytime the Lord convicts you of sin? Well, first of all, you confess it. You confess it. You confess your sin. And listen, when I mean confess your sin, name it for what it is. Don't say I made a mistake. Say it, I committed adultery. I cheated, I lied. I've broken my covenant. I've been unfaithful. I've been selfish. Name it for what it is. Confess your sin. Secondly, you repent from it. You turn from it. If you're hearing this this morning, and like I said, you're kind of at this weird place, this tension of where you're considering walking out on your spouse for unjustifiable reasons, you confess and you repent. You turn the other direction. And then thirdly, you ask for forgiveness. You ask for forgiveness from both God and, listen, from those you have sinned against. I was talking to many people about this passage this week, and a dear brother shared a story where a family member had to write a letter to the person that they had stepped out on many years earlier. Did it fix everything? No. Did it heal everything? Not necessarily. But what it did do was help that person to know that they have finally acknowledged the sin that they did and the hurt that they had caused. 
So confess, repent, and ask for forgiveness. The gospel is greater than even all of the sins I just talked about here. And Jesus died for people who have sinned in these areas. He stands ready to forgive. He already has shed his blood to wash you and cleanse you. There are always repercussions to sin, but you could walk out of here today fully forgiven, knowing that the Lord has taken care of that sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I know it was a heavy word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would just, um, yeah, speak to my brothers and sisters. And I pray for us as a church, Lord. I pray for us that we would be a, a church that has a culture of grace and a culture of truth and of love, that we could walk alongside brothers and sisters, men, women, and even younger people who are struggling, failing, sinning in these issues. Father, I thank you that you are the God of all hope, that you are the repairer of the breaches, as Isaiah says, that you rebuild the walls, you repave the streets, and you restore broken relationships and marriages. And so, Father, I pray that if any here needs that repair, Lord, you would do that. And, Father, as you do that, people would say, wow, what an amazing, amazing God we have. And so, Father, we, we pray all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.